I'm Craig James, and this is Big Audacious Idea, the show about thinking big. We investigate the greatest questions of life and ponder the future. We also endeavor to foster abundant thinking during times of uncertainty. Welcome to the show. What if you could see through time? What if we could watch the birth of the universe? Well, we can. And my guest today, Colonel Michael Good, has done just that. On this episode of Big Audacious Idea, we're discussing the very idea of human exploration. The personal journey of a man who has tested some of the most advanced aircraft on the planet and crew member aboard shuttle missions, one to the Hubble Space Telescope and one to the International Space Station. We also glean insights on the personal thoughts and emotions of a person launching into space on a rocket, walking through space, and then returning back to Earth. His reflections regarding complex systems and what he considers the ultimate team sport. So Mike and I were casually chatting as the recording session was commencing, and he began chatting about a few images that he shared with me. You may want to check out the show notes to see what he speaks to. Well, the, the two pictures of me are just on, on spacewalks. One, and I have the Hubble Space Telescope in the background. That was pretty much the first thing I did on my very first spacewalk. I scampered up to the window and got, I wanted to get the hero shots out of the way before we got started. So, but a pretty cool shot. And I, I like that uh, salute, you know, I was a Air Force officer at the time of that mission. It was actually the uh, the 25th anniversary of my commissioning in the Air Force, so that was what that salute was for. The other image of me outside it was on uh, the space station mission, STS-132. That's one of my favorite pictures. That was taken by my spacewalking partner outside, so we were both outside. We have cameras with us, and so he took that picture of me. We were literally, you know, floating there right next to each other. He grabbed his camera, and you can't, it's not like you can look through the camera, you just sort of pointed and he captured that shot and I thought it was great just the colors sometimes the earth gets kind of blown out the light's not right and so I just thought it was kind of a, a pretty picture there's two Hubble images there and they're very different so one is there's stars that's Omega Centauri and there's probably 10 million stars in that picture which is just amazing but this is an image that Hubble took and sent down to earth what I like about it, and I don't know if you can see it, is the colors. Why do you use a space telescope? What are the advantages? Well, you're above the atmosphere. Any telescope on Earth, we have to look through all that atmosphere, you know, the dust, the dirt, the smog, the whatever it might be. So we're up in space. We bypass all that. So everything is crystal clear up there. And it's it's like, you know, high-def 3D TV, right? And so the stars don't twinkle in space, right? The stars only twinkle from our perspective as we look through the atmosphere. Do you get, Mike, to see some of what the Hubble sees in some way while you're up there? I'm guessing not, but is there? You do. Yeah, definitely. You, obviously, you can look back at the Earth, but you can look out the other way and it's all black out there. And so you can see the stars, you can see the planets. Some people may think that you can see them better, that we're closer to them. Well, you're, you're really no closer to them than, than we are here on Earth. You know, we're only a couple hundred miles up in low Earth orbit. But since we're above the atmosphere, you can see the colors. And so you can see the blues, the whites, the oranges, the yellows, the reds, just because there's more clarity. And that really gives you insight into where that star is in its life cycle. You know, what it's burning. You know, is it 
getting old and it's a red giant or, or red dwarf or, and about to collapse on itself. You know, just what's it burning? Is it hydrogen? Is it helium? So it's, it's just kind of interesting that that picture is so many stars and that, that's just looking at one tiny little spot in the night sky. The other picture is interesting because again, we're just looking at one tiny spot in the night sky through Hubble. It's like if you went outside and, and looked through a soda straw up at the sky, just one little tiny spot on the night sky. And that spot looked completely black and dark, but Hubble stared at it for such a long period of time uh, over the course of days mm. and captured all this light coming in. Literally some of the first light of the universe, if that makes sense. So Hubble is looking back in time in a sense, because that light is traveling towards Earth, towards Hubble. And some of that light is 13 billion with a B years old, literally the first light of the universe after the Big Bang. And it's just getting to Hubble now. And so you think about how far that light has traveled in 13 billion years at the speed of light, you know, right. Right. So it, it, it kind of blows your mind a little bit on, wow, how big is you know the universe? But those are all galaxies. Every one of those spots you see in that picture is galaxies. So there's millions of stars in each of those galaxies. And we're looking at just, again, this tiny little spot in the night sky. So again, how big is the universe? What else is out there? You know, are there other stars and planets like ours? But it's just infinite. Yeah. I reflect on my my dad and his life and at his eulogy, I used one key word and that was perspective. He always had perspective. As soon as you think you see a picture, there's a bigger picture. And then that context is tiny and yet another picture. And as I listen to your continued passion, Mike, obviously, around what you've experienced and still experience in your mind and your heart since those spacewalks is uh, quite telling to me. And what I, what I think I'm hearing is not only what we see through exploration in the Hubble, but how we see. I'm imposing a thought here that leads to a question, and that is, you know, this experience, a set of experiences you've had, how do you look at life in a big picture sense, maybe a bit differently having had these experiences? Well, that's an interesting question and picked up on something that's interesting too, is like, what's the connection between Hubble and exploration? And to me, Hubble allows us to take that first step in exploration, right? So people think of exploration, it's it's somebody, it's Lewis and Clark going down the river in their canoe or traveling in a spaceship somewhere. But the first step is just being able to look, right? So we can use Hubble to see out into the universe, to see well beyond our solar system and even our galaxy, and to go explore the universe through pictures, through other scientific instruments that are on board, you know, that break down the light like a prism and we can tell what much more about what we're looking at, the chemical compositions, the ages and, you know, the Doppler shift. And uh, it's just amazing. Hubble is really allowing us to rewrite the physics books from the, the books that we used in, in high school and college. For me personally, just being in space, and as I said, in low earth orbit, just a couple hundred miles above the earth and to look back at the earth and to have that perspective and to see the earth and go around, you know, we're going around the earth once every 90 minutes. So I see a sunrise and a sunset every 45 minutes, but it's amazing. And you know, you don't, there's not any lines on the map down there, right? So you don't see the, the political boundaries. You just see the earth and uh, it's beautiful. You see all the natural things, the Nile River and the mountains, the Himalayas. It's moving. You could see the horizon, you know, all 360 degrees of the horizon. And so as I look down on it, I was like, hey, that, that looks like a planet, you know, and that may sound kind of silly, but 
when we're here on earth and we just see as far as I, as the horizon from up there, I could see the horizon was a thousand miles in each direction. So I'm looking down at a lot of the earth, 360 degrees. And I realized this is a planet. And so we're all actually flying. This is our spaceship. We're all flying through space right now on this spaceship called earth. It's a hunk of rock and we're all on it together. Right? So a couple thoughts about, Hey, we need to take care of this, right? This is our spaceship and we all need to get along. It doesn't matter what language you speak or where you live. We're all on the same spaceship and there's nowhere else to go. So <laughs> that's why I think it's important for more people to have this experience and to get to fly in space and to look back at our planet. You know, and as we talk, Mike, I think about, geez, what is it that is in us as humans to crave that perspective, to seek exploration, learning and travel? What do you think is at the sort of the root of us? Is it that in some ways we're like, uh oh, we might mess up the earth. Let's get out of here and figure out a way. Or is there a bit more of a romantic, real thing, which is we're designed to explore? What do you think is at the root of the root of why we do this stuff? There is some of that of, yeah, it's good to have a backup plan, right? So if something, <laughs> you know, this is our only place. And so it would be great if we had another place that we could live. And there, you know, there, you could talk about it in terms of resources. Are there resources out there that we could use to benefit Earth? Do we need to inspire the next generation of children and of students? But I think I agree with you if you're getting it. I really think it's in our core. It's in our DNA that we have humans have a need to explore. You know, space is just one option or one direction there. You can explore your backyard, the woods behind your house, the depths of the ocean, the mountaintops. But uh, space is definitely a, an interesting option to me. But I think exploring is that's how we learn. That's how we grow, you know, as humans. That's how we get better. And so there's a, there's a lot out there to explore and and how quickly we progressed in a lot of ways. I mean, we went from flying the first airplane at the beginning of the 1900s by the Wright brothers and 50 years later, we're not only flying commercially and, you know, at greater distances and much safer, but now we're flying spaceships to the moon and, you know, walking on the moon within 60 years of flying the first airplane glider. So it's just amazing that the technology and how far we've come. I would say since then, it's been more linear than, than I would like to see. I would like to see continued growth, but uh, it's a great cost uh, that goes with it, right? And so there's a lot of other needs. Again, trying to figure out how can we start tapping into the resources that are out there and bring them back to benefit the Earth. And so I think it'll be interesting as we move on to the moon and to Mars in the future, how we can do that and how we can make it more value added. Yeah, I, having grown up in the IT industry, there was a fellow named Jeffrey Moore who spoke to and created what's called Moore's Law, which was that in terms of information communication technology, performance doubled at half the price every 18 months. That was the mantra back in the 90s. It continues. We never thought it would continue to happen. It has happened, creating an amazing exponential, even hyper exponential progress in technology, which could lead to singularity where even the blur between man and machine becomes a bit more confusing. And it's interesting to hear that in the context of space exploration, that exponentiality isn't necessarily happening, even though there's many technologies underneath that are exponentially changing. I wonder why that is. Do you have any thoughts? Well, I think a lot of it is the funding and um, the appetite for spending money on this when 
other needs. But I will say that I agree with you that the technologies there, there's, I shouldn't say that we aren't making progress because there's, oh gosh, there's so many more launches now and there's so many more satellites are up there and, you know, communications and imaging. And it's amazing what can be done from space down, what is being done, but we're in low earth orbit still. And so when really, when I made those comments, I was referring more to our exploration of moving further out into the solar system, you know, going back to the moon and going out to Mars and, and just exploring further as humans, you know, space has provided us so much just in low earth orbit. I mean, you know, the GPS satellite network, I mean, navigation, banking, we couldn't do any banking here. You couldn't go to the ATM and withdraw money without the GPS satellite constellation. You know, it, it provides the timing signal. I don't know that people in general have the awareness or the appreciation for how much they rely on space every day to watch TV, to communicate, and um, just the, even farmers and crop production and looking down at the earth and, you know, analyzing and, and perfecting and optimizing. It's, it's made us in incredibly better and more efficient. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s, and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. One of the beauties of speaking with you, Mike, not only to feel your energy and passion, but to get sort of the inside scoop for a lot of us we can only imagine what it's like to experience what you have experienced. And even if we participate, we're motivated but passive. So like watching Bob and Doug, for example, uh, splash down, the emotion is hard to describe. And I felt this when you landed and hit ground, the landing strip there on uh, STS-125. And I was just so proud. I felt participative but passive. I felt such an overwhelm of emotion. And uh, I guess the reason I'm going there is to A, share that, but B, tap into something I'm feeling again from you. You can just feel your energy. And it makes me think about the emotions that might experience on a mission. So when I was seeing Doug and Bob hit the water safely, I was thinking, geez, what's going through your mind at that time? Are you thinking, oh, phew, we got through that. I'm glad that's done. Or, oh man, I can't believe that's finally all over. <laughs> I wish it would continue. Or I can't wait to see my family. Or are you programmed as an astronaut to be like, we're still doing our business. Safety's number one. We've got to do steps six, seven, and eight now. Tell me about some of the emotion you experience in those moments. You're completely right. It's it's a flood of emotions, but really we're trained to just follow the checklist. So even you heard after they splashed down and one of the first things that the Capcom from uh, SpaceX said was, okay, we're going to pick up in section 3.102 or what I, that's, I'm making up that number, but he was just 
getting them back to the checklist because we are just focused. We're just laser focused on what's right in front of us. And, and you're right. So you have to stay safe. You have to continue with the procedures because there are things to do and, and you're operating that spaceship. But are there emotions? Of course there are, you know, you feel all those things you described a little bit of relief. Hey, we're, we're down safely, especially on a test flight. First time flying a vehicle, you know, it's pretty great to know everything worked. <laughs> um, yeah. Are you looking forward to sharing that with your family and, and reuniting with them, of course, and seeing the whole test team and the, the trainers and everybody that got that vehicle ready? I mean, I'm sure they're looking forward to going back and visiting all those people and saying thank you and, and sharing their experiences with them. There is just a, a flood of emotions, but at the same time, you're just focused on the next step. That's how you get through the mission. You referred to the the team and the team of teams, and there's a couple guests we've had here on the show. Uh, one is a fellow named Greg Woldridge, who uh, led the Blue Angels flight demonstration team three times over. I think only guy to do that in history. He would always speak to and talk about the thunder behind the lightning. And he would say, you know, we get to be in the shiny jets and flash our pearly whites, he'd say. But without the ground crew, without the maintenance crew, without the logistics, without the training, without the pre-brief, debrief team, the show's nothing. And watching missions to the Hubble, I can't help but think of all the systems and subsystems. And I'm thinking to myself, everything has to go just right. Tell us a little bit about the sort of the systems, the mechanics, the disciplines part of making a mission go well. I like the way uh, the commander from the Blue Angels put that. I'll get back and talk about teams in a little bit. But you're right. It's it, there's a, a lot of consecutive miracles that have to happen to make a rocket launch and go into space and rendezvous and dock and undock and re-enter and land. There's just so much that has to happen and happen right the first time. It's just amazing, and there's just so much preparation that goes into it. The spacewalks on Hubble, we practiced every spacewalk 12 times in the neutral buoyancy laboratory a huge 40-foot deep pool where we could float in our spacesuits and had giant mock-ups of the Hubble and the space station. And we could, we practiced everything time and time again so that you're just, uh, the repetition, the muscle memory is there. Um, it's just an incredible <laughs> system of systems, as you described, to, to launch. You have to put all this energy to escape Earth's gravity and get going fast enough to orbital velocity, 17,500 miles an hour, just to get going around the Earth. And then you're literally just falling around the Earth at that point. When we're up there and the engines cut off and we're in zero gravity or, or near zero gravity, we're really just falling. We're falling back to the center of the Earth. But if you think about it, the velocity vector, we're going so fast that we're following the curvature of the Earth and basically just falling around the Earth. That's what orbit is. And it takes a lot of energy to get going that fast. And then when you want to come home, you have to take that energy out of the system. And so we actually turn around and we do a little bit of a deorbit burn. We slow down just a couple hundred miles an hour, and that's enough to start sinking back into the atmosphere and start running into a couple of molecules here and there. And that slows you down a little bit more, and that allows you to sink down into the atmosphere more. And it's just pretty soon you're really slowing down a lot. And it's 3,000 or 3,500 degrees outside is the, the molecules. You're just smashing into the molecules at Mach 25, 25 times the speed of sound. So all that energy you put into the system going up, you have to take out of the system coming back so that you land again at velocity zero and safe and sound. So 
It's a great ride both ways. It's it's equally exciting. Do you miss it? I do. I would do it again in a heartbeat, but it's not my turn now. As my dear wife says, I had a great run. I had a good run in the Air Force, got to do a lot of things with flight tests, had a good run with NASA, two great missions, two different destinations, which is really exciting to get to go to two different places, if you will, both in low Earth orbit, but different altitudes, different orbits, different inclinations. Um, I do miss it, but it's great to hand that off to the next group of astronauts, the next group of explorers. And as I said earlier, we need more people to have this experience. So that leads beautifully. Uh, Mike, of course, it's so interesting to talk about your experiences and your perspectives for sure, but you clearly have a lens and a mindset that has to do with others. So perhaps we can look back in time and talk about the others. You were going to speak to team, I believe, and would love to hear comments, thoughts, and perspectives there. And then part two would be a little bit about the future and how our listeners might be able to apply some of this in their lives. So let's start before we leave the past and your experiences. Tell us a bit about that team dynamic and maybe some things that would surprise us about what we think we would imagine about that, but the reality is maybe different than we might perceive. We're kind of at the the pointy end of the spear there, the astronauts are, we get to ride the rocket and it's an incredible privilege to get to ride that rocket, but it wouldn't happen without the team of engineers that designed the rocket and tested it and the technicians that put it together and, and tested it some more, the trainers, all the trainers that taught us how to use all these systems of systems, you know, the controllers in the, in the mission control room that are you know, leading us through the mission and, and controlling, helping us control that uh, that spacecraft from the ground. The flying in space is the ultimate team sport. It really takes a great team to put it all together. We tried, especially on STS-132, my second mission, the crew made it a point to try to include the team as much as we could in our mission. Before the mission, during the mission, after the mission, because it, it wouldn't have happened without this team. Just to give you an idea, we often take a crew photo before we go, right? So we have the family picture. Well, what we chose to do, we took the picture in Houston, the Astros Stadium, and we filled up one section with all of our family and all those trainers and all those people that were on our team. And we took our picture with the whole team. So that was our crew photo. So this speaks to a human dynamic, and then maybe we can look to the future in just a moment. But the human dynamic you make me think about is we think of team in the context of a specific mission. We have these systems and teams supporting the systems to make the mission fly, literally. Then there's the idea of the backdrop and supply chain to get the technologies to the team that's owning the mission. That makes me think about national, if not international, cooperation and coordination that's necessary, even if we might see an American flag on a specific spacecraft. Share with us a little bit about just how this informs our political, geopolitical, nationalist or globalist views. How does space maybe affect and inform some of those big human systemic topics? Yeah, I think that space is, it's becoming more commercial. It's definitely international. I mean, if you look at just the International Space Station, where I went on one of my missions, you know, a group of space agencies working together. We're flying up in space, living and working with the Russians. Okay, where else are we doing that? <laughs> Nowhere. We're not getting along well with the Russians, but it's great to be able to have space and to have that relationship 
So to have and use space as a way to to bridge that gap, I think it's it's a powerful diplomatic tool. The fact that we're we're living and working together in space and training. I mean, we spend a lot of time going back and forth. And as we get these new vehicles on the U.S. side, which is great with the commercial uh, crew program with SpaceX and Boeing, we will continue to fly up on the Russian Soyuz and they will start to fly with us on our vehicles. So we'll continue this partnership with the with the Russians and other international partners. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's a way to get past some of the the controversies and the disagreements that we have here on earth, we can kind of put them aside. You spoke earlier about having this common mission. And that's a wonderful thing too, is to have a goal where everybody's working toward the same goal. Oftentimes when you have teams and there's a lot of things going on and you don't have that common mission, you don't have that common goal, things can fall apart. So that's one of the cool things about flying in space is that there is this focus on this one mission. We're going to go do this mission. And it really brings everybody's focus in line. If I imagine myself being a listener right now, whether 13 years old or 23 or 43 or 63, I I can't help wonder what these experiences you've had and your gracious sharing of them with us, how we apply this in daily life. And I'm, I'm especially thinking about the 13 and 23 year olds who lead our future. They are the future, but not all of us get to do what you've done. How do we apply this to our everyday life and our future? I think whatever you're going to do in life, and I'm certainly not here to encourage everybody to be astronauts because that's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to get on a rocket and you know fly to space. We need uh, doctors and nurses and teachers and you know engineers and scientists and all kinds of people to get us through uh, and to be a society. But I think the common thing is you have to have a dream, right? I had a dream as a kid. I wanted to get into this space business. I wanted to fly airplanes and learn how to design and build rockets and airplanes. And that's how I got into aerospace engineering in in school. But I think it all starts with a dream. So you have to be able to dream it, believing in yourself enough to say, I can do that, right? I was lucky enough that my parents always encouraged me to, whatever you want to do, you can do it. There was never any roadblocks there. They encouraged me to dream big. And so you start with a dream, but then you have to sort of build on that dream and lay out your goals. You set your goals and you have to set them high. And I know that sounds a little trite, but uh, it's so true. We set our goals. And then as you tick off those goals along the way, you're going to turn your dream into a reality. That's ultimately what we're going for. One thing that'd be interesting to explore a little bit, and I'm again thinking about the aspiring next generation, and also accessibility. When I think of, at least when we were kids, I want to be an astronaut, fireman, architect, podcast host, I remember one of them, um, you, you know, but it feels like it's it's out there. It's not really accessible. Do you see a future of greater accessibility and equity where if you want to play in space, you can get there more than you might think? And what encouraging words might you have for our uh, next generation? Absolutely. I think that's one of the big pluses right now of commercial space. There are several companies that are trying to do just that. We're trying to um, pave that highway to space, you know, to develop the infrastructure so that we can get to space cheaper, safer, more reliably in the future. You know, our kids and our grandkids, they'll be the ones that innovate and invent and figure out how to use space. 
but they need to be able to get there. And so I think now as we can build that uh, highway to space to pave the road to space for them so that they can use it. I don't want to oversimplify that, but it's just something that has to happen. We have to make space travel more accessible. It has to be uh, cheaper. It has to be safer so that we can go just like the airline industry. We know we can go from Orville and Wilbur and, you know, using airplanes in World War One, flying the mail to, hey, what if we flew people? You know, what if we could shrink the size of the country and put people on airplanes and have them fly to different cities and not have to drive and get there, you know, 10 times faster. So we're at that same point in our space travel now, you know, that 50, 60 years in where we're ready to now commercialize space. We've been listening to Colonel Michael Good, astronaut, pilot, dreamer. I'm Craig James, your host, and this is Big Audacious Idea. Mike, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thank you, Craig. After talking with Mike, we gain an appreciation for the fact that space isn't going anywhere, and it's there for us to explore. We explore space not only as a human contingency plan in case things go really bad on Earth, but it's more about a deeper reason, a reason that is at our core as humans. We explore to grow, to get better, and to make life better for all of us here on Earth and beyond. In fact, we discovered that what we do, or deploy, quote, out there, is integral to our daily lives down here. Whether ordering Uber Eats or making a phone call, none of that would happen without a constellation of satellites. Space and space exploration is also a platform for learning, and it's a big part of how we successfully hand off the future to the next generation. I'm Craig James, your host, and you've been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. Let us know what you think about our chat with Mike Good today by tweeting me at cjamescatstrat. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us in your podcast app. It really helps. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcasts.com. I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, production director, Bridget Coyne, and my co-executive producer, Michael D'Aloya. Thanks for listening. Until next time, don't just think audacious, be audacious. Coming up on 5-Minute News. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.